Again, everyone, and welcome to the Cincy Shirts Podcast, episode 204. And today it is the best of 2021, part two. So we're gonna hear some clips from some of our favorite episodes from the second half of the year, and we'll be getting to those in just a second. Right after I remind you that if you've been liking the podcast, please support it by PayPal or Venmo. Simply use podcast at cincyshirts.com and chip in whatever you feel is fair. Also, be sure to listen for that special promo code for 20% off near the end of the episode. I haven't even chosen it yet. I will choose it when we get to the end of all this, and I'll just choose it right off the top of my head. So now let's go with some more of our favorite moments from the Cincy Shirts Podcast 2021. We'll pick it up at episode 178. We had author Catherine Witt on, and Catherine Witt wrote a, a book called Secret Cincinnati, and she told us a lot of interesting stories, and we always gravitate toward the ghost stories, don't we? And she had one about Baker Hunt, which is uh, a, an art outfit in Covington. I should know more. My daughter had an internship there a couple of years ago, and she loved it. But uh, so there was some, well, I'll let her explain. Like one of the more obscure things that, that I found out about was connected to a place I did know about, and that is Baker Hunt. So oh. that's in Covington Community Resource, and they do a lot of art classes there. And, and I think most people know about that. But what I was surprised to find out when I was talking to the director is that a, um, a famous Cincinnati medium uh, Laura Cooper Pruden used to hold seances at Baker Hunt. And she held them with permission of the owner because she had lost her 15-year-old daughter. Um, and uh, several. It, it's a very tragic story. She lost one family member after another. But Laura, for like 15 years, held seances at Baker Hunt. Um, and I just thought, well, who would ever know that? But the story gets even more interesting because... Laura's son is Albert Carter. Albert Carter is the guy who made the prototype of what became the Magic 8-Ball. How about that? The Magic 8-Ball invented right there in Covington, Kentucky. So for episode number 180, we've talked to the folks at the Tri-State Warbird Museum out there in Claremont County. Uh, interesting stuff. Found out one of their planes was in a TV show. I'll let you go back and listen to the episode uh, to get the details on that. We also discussed the difference in technology between World War One and World War Two as far as fighting aircraft go. So one of the the things that now, if you come to the museum now, you can see in, in a really big way is that there was a huge technological advancement between World War I and World War II. There probably, I don't know how you quantify this actually, but there probably was just as much need-based engineering developments during World War II as there were in the, the lull between the wars. So we've got a P-40 that we restored in-house. It was a late 30s design by Curtis Aircraft in Buffalo, New York. And by the time American involvement was in full swing in World War II, it was largely obsolete. Things like the P-51 Mustang, which were developed during the war for a specific purpose, really outshone the, the technology and the aerodynamics involved in the P-40 in a pretty big way. 
So we figured out, we, the Allied forces in general, figured out that long-range bomber escort in all the way into and out of Germany, occupied France, wherever, uh, was extremely important. But we didn't have an airplane. David O'Malley, the president and vice chairman, uh, vice treasurer and secretary of the Tri-State Warbird Museum, discussing the difference in technology between World War I and World War II as far as uh, fighting craft go, fighting aircraft, and the big leap that we saw between those. Episode 182, we spoke to, let's see, oh, 181, we're at, I'm sorry, Voice of America, and uh, we spoke to them about, uh, Jack Dominic was the guy we spoke to, actually. He's, I guess, the historian, uh, you you would say, of the uh, Voice of America Museum, and he spoke to us about kind of how, I asked him, something my father told me was that the Voice of America and WLW's transmitters ended up out where they are in Mason because that ground was perfectly suited to... Uh, for AM waves, I don't even know about radio, kids, but uh, AM radio waves are work on what are called sky waves and ground waves. And the ground in Mason apparently was perfectly suited for that. But he says that isn't quite the case. Uh, there was another accidental thing that was wonderful. Uh, right out our front door is the terminus back then of the power grid coming from then the Cincinnati Gas and Electric and the terminus of the power grid coming from Dayton Power and Light. So this building was was dually fed off of two separate independent grids. To, in or, now, did did they plan that? No. Did they? Was that a cool thing? Absolutely. This place, you know, used more electricity than many small towns, and it also needed to be uh, redundant. There, there are a lot of apocryphal things, so that has some truth in it. This is a good place to put shortwave transmitters for the radials and all of that type of stuff. But there's all kinds of things. You know, people say, well, they used to receive the VOA or the Voice of America on their dentures. Yeah. <laughs> um, probably probably not. Could a barbed wire fence within a mile of the WLW? Yeah. Yeah. yeah can, if, you put your ear, if you put your... You put your ear up to the pole, you probably could hear. Okay, yeah, Keyswitter uh, told us about that when he was on. Yeah, I mean, it. but, you know, a lot of people say, well, you know, I heard it on my eyeglasses. And, <laughs> you know, if, if they were being exposed to that much uh, radio frequency energy, they'd have, di- they have more problems than listening to uh, <laughs> the <laughs> program. But uh, so there's a lot of apocryphal. But the fact remains is that, even here, these were the six most powerful transmitter, shortwave transmitters in the entire world. So there you go. It was a little bit of both, wasn't it? So the power grid came from Dayton to Cincinnati and it met at Mason. And then also there were some other factors involved, uh, making Voice of America one of the most powerful radio stations in the world for some time. And go back and listen to that whole episode, too. It's very fascinating stuff about the whole Voice of America. Now we get to Rick Pender, Rick, one uh, in episode 182. Rick, a, a former colleague of mine at City Beat, he has also written several books about Cincinnati, but he's also written one, not really a book so much as more as an encyclopedia, a vast undertaking about one of his heroes, uh, Stephen Sondheim. A publisher approached me about doing this book called the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia, a big reference book about Sondheim. So I, at first I thought they were asking me to bring together a bunch of writers to put it together. And, uh, and then they said, no, we really have in mind that you would be its author. So I said, okay, well, you know, you know, send me a contract and we'll talk about this. And uh, 
They, my contract, which I did ultimately sign, was for 300,000 words. Ooh. You know how many words that is. Yes. It's a lot of writing. It took me about two years to generate the material for it. And uh, I sent it off to the publisher in late 19. It was originally scheduled to come out in April of 20. But as we all know, the pandemic kind of, you know, stalled everything. In fact, the publisher furloughed most of its editorial team. So it kind of sat, the manuscript sat there and gathered dust for about eight months. And they cranked it up again last fall. And it was published in April of this year. It is a 650 page reference book about all aspects of Sondheim. It's got, uh, you know, summaries and uh, write-ups about his 18 musicals, uh, lots of entries about people who starred in shows and directed them and uh, so on. So that is out there now. Uh, it's a book that, you know, libraries will use as reference, but there's also a lot of uh, major musical theater, especially Sondheim fans who are interested in buying it. And it's uh, been selling pretty well thus far, as have my other books. So that's cool. that's how I ended up. I did not go out and pitch books to anybody. Huh. They just sort of uh, found you. came to me. Yeah, that might be my dream, unusual. man. That, that's, yeah. that's my dream, but it always seems like a daunting task. So were you a Sondheim fan in particular, or was he like maybe in your top five, six? I'm trying to just gauge where. He was probably always my favorite. Rick Pender talking about the Stephen Sondheim Encyclopedia. We just lost Stephen Sondheim a few months ago, and uh, a hero of Rick's. And Rick has compiled the Richard the the Sondheim Encyclopedia. So look for it wherever you get books, of course. For episode one eighty three, this one is really interesting, especially with Cincinnati being a basketball town like it is. We spoke to Scott Tarter, who we are partnered with. He runs Lana Sports. He also runs something called the Dropping Dimes Foundation, which raises money for players from the American Basketball Association of the nineteen seventies. You may be familiar with. Kentucky Colonels were in that and won a championship in that league in 1975. Many of the players, though, from that league do not receive a pension because they did not make it to the merger or, more accurately, the absorption by the National Basketball Association. So there's many, many players and their families who receive no monies whatsoever in their retirement from professional basketball and Dropping Dimes raises money to, uh, and he explains the whole thing. And another thing we discussed in this, uh, in this specific episode was how one of the teams drafted a fictitious player and how that player kind of became legendary in the ABA. And by the time they got to the 17th round, he's just fit to be tied. He's just, he's just, he's just, and he says, I'm not, I'm not doing it. I'm not going to pick another, another no-name guy in the 17th round. And, and the GM, a guy named Rob Weissert, starts telling him, you have to, those are the rules. You've got to do it. And the lawyer is saying, I agree, you got to do it. And so then Slick, Slick came up with the name or Rob Weissert or Slick, one of the two came up with the name Slick Pinkham, which was sort of a combination between Slick Leonard and Dick Tinkham. And uh, apparently the guys then said, well, we got it. He can't come from a D1 school because they'll be able to figure that out. And so they said they picked a division three school and said, okay, he played at DePaul University D-E-P-A-U-W in Greencastle, Indiana, which is my alma mater. Oh, wow. <laughs> and and they said, uh, you know, we'll say he's slick pinkum. He's a red shirt from DePaul University. And within that five-minute pre-internet time period that they were on the clock, the NBA couldn't confirm it. So it went down in league history as an official draft choice, even though the guy didn't didn't exist. So, so, so yeah, a lot of the players love the reference to slick pinkum because – 
because that was another rebellious thing that happened in the ABA that was recorded for history. Scott Tarter of Line of Sports and Dropping Dimes discussing the fictitious player drafted by the American Basketball Association back there in the 1970s. We spoke to our own Jim Farmer. Jim Farmer works at our OTR store. We spoke to him episode 185 because he also works at the Cincinnati Reds Hall of Fame uh, and museum there, and we also had a discussion. Uh, we had kind of a, not a heated discussion, but we can we, we disagreed on this. We discussed how sometimes when a team leaves a city and they, they, the team comes back in some incarnation, the history sometimes it continues like the Cleveland Browns, and sometimes it does not like the Winnipeg Jets. That's what, I hate to say this, but I I, I agree with that because they own they own the, they yeah. own that history. Yeah, yeah. And I don't but, know what's going to go on with the Nordiques. I think the Nordiques might have a deal where they get to keep their history. I don't know how that's. I hate, I hate that because it's it's just, you know, I mean, the, the, it's like it's like somebody masquerading. I, I, like the the, the the Charlotte Hornets have done that. The Charlotte Bobcats are now part of the Charlotte Hornets, and it's oh, just, yeah. <laughs> I can't it's stand that. Mess. I mean, it's it's cre- it's it, it creates a you know it just creates too much too much confusion. Our own Jim Farmer from the OTR store and from the Reds Hall of Fame. He's the assistant curator at the Reds Hall of Fame. He and I disagreeing on whether a team's history should stay in the city or once the franchise leaves, it leaves, and that's the end of it. I'm sorry. I'm I'm more for the uh, franchise history staying in the city. The Jets just will be the Jets back to the WHA, although then you're going to have that gap in there. So I guess I can kind of see Jim's point, but I'm sorry. The Browns are still the Browns. That's the end of it. Plaid Room Records were our guests on episode 186. These guys used to be neighbors of ours when we had the Loveland store. They're terrific. Uh, Terry Cole is actually a former school teacher, and he opened up the record store with his brother. Uh, he became dissatisfied with teaching and thought, maybe I'll be going to the record store business and to the record label business. He runs the record label that they have. His brother runs the record store. And one thing I've always wondered about is when you take your old vinyl records to sell back to them, how do they know what the value of those records is and how do they know that they're not going to underpay you or overpay you for that vinyl? Yeah, I mean, yeah, we, we don't miss much. Yeah. Um, that's for sure. And, you know, we try to sit pricing wise, we try to sit somewhere in the in the, the happy medium of not being so cheap that somebody could buy it just to flip it online. Yeah. But also not being so expensive that people are just like, well, what these are like online prices. So, you know, if you get a rare record and it's a hundred dollar record and you put it out for 75 bucks, well, cool. Somebody can come in locally and go, Oh, this is a hundred dollar record and it's in great shape and it's 75 bucks. That's a good price. But also it's not so cheap that somebody's going to come in and go, I'm going to buy this for 75 bucks and see if I can get a hundred out of it online. You know, it just, that's the, that's sort of the needle you want to thread. I think with used is, uh, you know, because we're certainly not trying to get the tippy top out of every used record, you know. Yeah. Because if you did that, no one's going to want to come into your store, you know. What's the point of doing that? Terry Cole from Plaid Room Records. Episode 187 is fantastic. Kings Island, a ride through time. So there's this young man, Evan Ponstingle. He was a senior at Mason High School when he wrote the book, Kings Island, a ride through time. Also worked at Kings Island, loves Kings Island, and it is a detailed book. You would think, oh, a high school kid wrote this book, how cute. No, no, this is well-researched. He interviewed loads and loads of people. It is a proper historical account of Kings Island. Highly recommended. My daughter is reading it now. Uh, 
my daughter Liza, who works at the Hyde Park store. Say hi to her sometime. Yes, she's the girl on Instagram. But anyway, uh, Evan explained to us a fascinating story about how the Eiffel Tower almost ended up at Coney Island before they had a notion to build Kings Island, so Anderson Township would have had an Eiffel Tower. So the Eiffel Tower, he wanted to build that Eiffel Tower at Coney Island originally. He wanted to replace uh, the Lost River, which was like a boat ride. He wanted to replace that with the Eiffel Tower. But in the back of his mind, he's like, he, he ordered it. He ordered it from Intamin. And he's like, hold on. We're trying to build a new part. Like, why would we spend all this money to build a new Eiffel Tower when we're just going to be closing this park in a couple of years? So, so it was put on hold. And once they started getting further into the development of Kings Island and, and the entrance of Kings Island was going to be Europe. And, and, and of course, you know, the Eiffel Tower was going to be the perfect centerpiece, you know, if the front was going to be Europe. So it was resurrected for Kings Island and international street, actually um, each of those buildings on international street, those actually represent each of the countries that Gary visited on his, on his vacation. So I did not know that. Wow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So another thing that was at the park early that I don't think folks remember, and I only remember this because I think I wrote it a couple of years before they took it out completely, was Lion Country Safari. Yeah, Lion Country Safari. That was there's a lot of stories with that, right? You know, drive-through safaris. You know, they were very, very popular in the early '70s, but with the land that they that they had to use, you know, it did not make sense to do a drive-through, so it had to be a monorail instead. And lots of different things that happened <laughs> on that safari over the years. Um, you had baboons escaping. You had lions escaping. You had penguins escaping. You had um, you had a death. You had all, all, all sorts of crazy things. All sorts of crazy things. And it's, it's all in the book. Evan Ponstingle discussing one of the stories in his book, King's Island, A Ride Through Time, The Eiffel Tower, and also discussing why the buildings are designed the way they are on International Street there in the current King's Island Park. We spoke to Cam Miller in episode 189. Cam is a Reds and Star Wars fan. That's straight in Josh's basket. And one of the things we also discussed with him was he also works at the Reds Hall of Fame, like Jim Farmer. He was giving a tour to, uh, he gives tours to many famous people. One of them was Wayne Gretzky. And Wayne Gretzky had some fascinating insight and interest in the Reds Hall of Fame. And I say, right, Mr. Gretzky, if you look right here to your right, the 1975 trophy is right next to the 1976 trophy in the trophy room. And I'm just going on and on about championship. And he stops me and says, oh, that's great. I like these guys over here on the wall that, you know, in the background, these, these what's this guy's name? Oh, that's Cesar Durango. What's this guy's name? Oh, it's Doug Flint. And he wants to talk about those little guys that nobody talks about and the moments. He doesn't care about the championships. And he says to me, Baseball is great because of the moments. You don't get championships. Not every team wins a championship, but every team has players and moments that you remember. Even fans of the Pirates and the Baltimore Orioles, they have moments that they're going to cherish forever and ever and pass down to their kids and so on and so on. And I will never forget that conversation because I walked out of there and I jumped on the tank bus and I went home and I stayed up all night thinking about, I have been giving these tours talking about championships and I'm forgetting about the 1882 team that won a championship that nobody talks about. It's the first Reds championship of the American Association. And these guys that made up the team that Bid McPhee never wore a glove. Bid McPhee, yeah. We never talk about those guys. So I made a point after that Wayne Gretzky conversation to always talk about 
the other guys first. And yeah, there's a trophy we've seen it a million times and we, we know what it is, but there's guys in the Reds family that made up why we're the best franchise and the best tradition in baseball. This is why. Cam Miller discussing how he kind of got turned around on what to show folks at the Reds Hall of Fame when you showed him around the place and maybe giving more attention to maybe the lesser known aspects of the team's history versus, you know, the the players we all know and love, your Pete Roses, your Johnny Benches, the World Series, the Big Red Machine, and all that sort of affair. Speaking of the Reds, episode 191, our old friend John Kieswater usually comes to talk to us about the telly. But no, he talked to us about his new book about Joe Nuxall. And, of course, there was a book about Joe Nuxall already. He'd written an autobiography uh, with the help of, uh, I believe it was not Greg Horde. Now I can't remember who it was. He, but One of the sportscasters in town wrote the uh, biography, autobiography with Joe Nuxall. But John figured there was also room for his book because he had met Nuxy several times and he had all these great stories that didn't necessarily wind up in the autobiography were just great baseball stories. And so he wrote a book uh, called The Old Left-Hander and Me, available anywhere you get books. And well, here is one of the stories that he remembered Nuxy telling him. The, 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 the real genesis for this book was I moved, I, I grew up in Middletown, I worked for the Enquirer since I got out of college in 75. And in 86, my wife and I built a home up here in Fairfield where Joe lived. She was working for the Hamilton Journal at the time or the Fairfield Echo, I forget which. And my neighbor said, hey, Joe, Joe Knoxall speaking to the KSC tonight. Let's go hear him. Because every January, he would show, go to the uh, uh, Sacred Heart Church KSC and, and tell stories. And so we went over, and he just told these wonderful, sto- hilarious stories about his playing days. He was just a great storyteller. So when his book comes out in 2004, none of these great stories that I would hear him tell at banquets or at after-dinner things or, or to service groups were in the book, in his book. So I began, I, I had some of them collected because when I would interview him, I'd say, hey, tell me about the time that you were playing in, in Wrigley, and the and it was they had wet grass and the Cubs bunted on you two straight times and you fell on your butt and the guys got on base and you lost your temper or, or tell me about playing with Clue or tell me about what was it like you know with Billy Martin Billy Martin the Yankee manager who was fired five times who actually played for the Reds in 1960 near the end of his career or tell me and he told another great story about the time that. Gaylord Perry was pitching for the Giants in Candlestick Park his last season, in 19, Joe's last season in 66, and Maloney was pitching against Gaylord Perry. And Gaylord, of course, was throwing a spitter. It was, you know, it was breaking funny. And, and the Reds players were upset, and manager Dave Bristle was upset and went to Maloney and said, look, you throw a spitter too. Why don't you throw yours? And Maloney said, no, no, you know, I, I don't want to do that. And he kept on bugging him. Finally, Maloney says, if he throws me a spitter, then I'll start throwing mine. John Kieswater discussing his book, The Old Left-Hander and Me, for episode 192. We finally spoke to the folks in Norwood about the city of Norwood. You can check that episode out there. Uh, We've been begging them for, gosh, almost a year. And I think they were kind of slow getting back to us because they thought we were pulling their leg. We have a Norwood connection, a collection, and there are some funny shirts on the in the collection for Norwood, but we're not making fun of Norwood. We're more making fun of the style of shirt, like we have the, the one of those airbrush ones you'd buy in Gatlinburg. It's not making fun of Norwood. It's more making fun of the airbrush t-shirt design. And we have some that just honor Norwood, like, you know, it's history, and we love Norwood. We shop there all the time. So go back and check that one out. 193 was Finley Market. We spoke to 
Joe Hansbauer. He's the president and CEO of the corporation for Finley Market. And among the many things we discussed about the market was why it still draws people to this day. There are other markets in other cities. Baltimore has a big one. Cleveland has a big one. But it's not a big thing everywhere. And he kind of explains why Finley Market still draws the number of people it does, even though you can buy groceries probably not far from your house. From a overall use case perspective, going to the grocery store continues to be one of the lowest rated uh, experiences that customers have, right? When you ask customers uh, if they enjoy going to the grocery store, um, it is a very, very low rating. Um, we continue to see the opposite of that, right? When people, when we are surveying customers, um, you know, do you enjoy coming to Finley Market? What is your favorite thing, et cetera, et cetera. You know, we're seeing 80 and 90% of people view it as a positive experience as opposed to something that they have to do. And so it's, it's just, it's a different thing and it's a different category. And we talk about it a lot. I mean, you know, especially our weekend customers are driving in, you know, whether they're coming from, you know, over by you and, and Anderson or they're coming from northern suburbs or they're coming from northern Kentucky. You know, everybody that's coming to market or, or many of our customers on the weekends, you know, they're driving within a mile of three, four, five, six other places to get groceries right, on their way to Finley Market. And so if it's only about convenience, if it's only about fresh food, if it's only about cost of goods, if you will, we're never going to win in those categories. But you're not going to get this experience anywhere else, right? Certainly not in Cincinnati. Um, and, you know, I think there are, there are only a handful of comparable experiences that I think you can get in the entire country, right? So yeah, that's, that's what we're saying. You know, that's what we... That's what we focus on, and that's what we're that's what we're selling. Joe Hansbauer, president and CEO of the corporation for Finley Market, explaining why Finley Market is still such a big draw in Greater Cincinnati. Episode, let me see, one ninety four was Jim Tarble. I could not pick out a particular clip of Mr. Tarble, so you're gonna have to go back and listen to that whole episode. But what a fascinating story! Started the original Ludlow Garage, uh, was a music promoter, got into politics. It's just a fascinating story. So go back and check out that whole episode. That is totally worth it. That was a huge get for us. Uh, episode one ninety five, new friends of ours, the Claberheads. We found these folks when we did the. We weren't invited to Oktoberfest. Other people sell merch there. We've been trying for years, but our friend Greg over at Moreline House invites us to set up in his backyard for his Uberdrome celebration, and they were the band for most of the weekend, and we uh, we just fell in love with them. They're fantastic, and uh, one of the people that uh, is well, I guess she I guess she runs the Claber Heads. Uh, it's Erica. Claber. Uh, she is the, I guess, band leader. She plays the steel drums. Her daughter is the lead singer of the band. And uh, you got to just listen to them. They're, they're fabulous. And we're not the only ones that think so. They hear this all the time from folks all over the tri-state and really around the country. Wherever we go, they're, oh, we, we always come to this festival because we just want to see you. Like we, And that is like the most humbling comment to receive is someone saying we come to this festival just to see you you guys are just so much fun and that to me is validation that we're doing what we're supposed to be doing because you know what it's not about us all these musicians that play in our band are professional top-notch amazing musicians you know but it's not about that it's about harnessing that and making just a wonderful experience for who we're performing for so you know we don't take ourselves too seriously Although we take what we do seriously, we want to put on a great show of top-notch musicianship and great, um, you know, showmanship. And I think that, you know, it, it, we just have a lot of fun. It's so much fun. 
Erica Kleber of the Kleberheads explaining how much love that they get, and rightly so. You probably won't have a chance to see them again, even though they play like non-polka and non-German music uh, events. They mostly are, are active during Oktoberfest season, which starts uh, as early as July, I believe, in some parts of the country, and then runs, of course, through October. So if you have a chance to catch the Kleberheads next fall, do it. If you're deciding what Oktoberfest to go see and you see that they're playing, go to that one. They're fantastic. All right. So Fun While It Lasted, uh, I'm going to give you a little disclaimer here. Uh, Fun While It Lasted is a website that kind of chronicles defunct sports teams around the country. And, well, the guy that runs that is a good friend of ours, and Andy Crossley is his name. He lives in Boston. We are partners of his, so, in other words, on our sibling site, if someone goes to Fun While It Lasted and clicks on a link and goes over to Old School Shirts, our sibling site at, that you know, uh, he makes a couple of bucks. So it's a nice little system. Anyway, uh, and he's done very well for us. We've done very well for him. We are of like mind. And one of the things we discussed was spring football and why spring football has never worked and continues to be a challenge in this country. So people are, it's like the white whale. Uh, it's like people are obsessed <laughs> with making a spring pro football league work. Yeah. And, and it all goes back to the United States Football League of the 80s. And you mentioned John Bassett. You yep. know, he owned the Tampa Bay team with Burt Reynolds as his co-owner. And, um, you know, the USFL from 1983 to 85 really did some damage to the NFL. I mean, they signed three straight Heisman Trophy winners. They lured away future Hall of Famers like Steve Young in the NFL draft. They dra- they they pulled huge stars out of the NFL in free agency. But at the time, you know, the concept of the USFL was you have the Super Bowl and then you have nothing until the summer. And then there's just baseball which is big, but it's the only thing for the media to show on TV. They saw that cable TV and ESPN was coming along, and there wasn't much besides baseball happening in those months. And um, and then football didn't start up again until September. And so they viewed themselves as filling that gap and that there was an insatiable uh, American thirst for pro football. And people, a lot of media at the time scoffed at that idea. So you go Andy Crossley discussing spring football. I was thinking about it when I was putting this together. In Ohio, we've only had one experience with spring football, and we've only had it for one year. That was the Ohio Glory. They were in the original World League of American Football. They lasted one year. They shut down all the American teams, went over to Europe, and that's the only spring football team the state of Ohio has ever had. Go to oldschoolshirts.com, by the way, and our Columbus page, and you can get yourself an Ohio Glory t-shirt. And I believe we also have sweatshirts as well. Episode 197, the Golden Lamb, the Golden Lamb up there in Lebanon. John Zimka, he's the official historian of the Golden Lamb. We did have a, a ghost discussion, but we won't play that. Um, we discussed a lot of the famous visitor uh, <clears throat> visitors, excuse me, including one Charles Dickens. I often, t- I, I have this picture I, I carry around with me when I'm doing the his- my historian and uh, work. And it's a picture of Dickens painted about four months before he came to Lebanon. And he looks like Professor Snape from the Harry Potter movies. I mean, he's got the long flowing and the hair is somewhat wavy. Uh, He was only 29 years old. Uh, He had already written Oliver Twist and Nicholas Nickleby and the Pickwick Papers. Uh, Christmas Carol was a year and a half away. And so he and his wife, uh, her maid, and he hired a young man from Boston to be his secretary. And the four of them traveled for... Oh, five and a half months. And he kept notes and he wrote a book called American Notes about his travels. 
and uh, he loves Cincinnati. When he's coming down the Ohio River, he said it burst forth out of the forest like an Arabian night city. He called it thriving, animated, and cheerful. He goes on to St. Louis, comes back to Cincinnati, and on the 20th of April, they board a stagecoach at 8 o'clock in the morning, and they head north on what is now U.S. 42 Reading Road. And he likes to sit in the driver's box. So he's sitting shotgun by today's standards. Um, and he uh, he says the countryside reminded him of Kent, when he where he grew up five to ten years of age. And he says, being April, it is luxuriant and the promise of an abundant harvest. But then he goes on for a page and a half in his book, all about American carriage drivers, how they always chew tobacco and always spit and uh, only speak in monosyllables. And uh, he goes on and on. Hmm. They finally, he's impressed with the coach. Uh, the road was a McAdam road, uh, crushed gravel. And he says, he says specifically they're doing six miles to the hour. He thought that was great. Uh, that means the 30-mile trip took five hours from Cincinnati to Lebanon. But that for him, that was fantastic. And they get to the Golden Lamb, and he writes, we dine soon afterwards with the borders of the house. And since the coffee and tea were bad and the water worse, I asked for brandy. But it was a temperance hotel, hmm. and spirits were not to be had for love or money. John Zimkus, the official historian of the Golden Lamb, discussing Charles Dickens' visit to Lebanon. Of course, eight presidents have dined there. Some stayed overnight, and we discussed some of the presidents. I think we discussed all of the presidents, actually, that uh, visited the Golden Lamb over the years. And a little bit about Lebanon as well. Lebanon is great. If you ever have a good go up on a Saturday or a Sunday, just knock around. A lot of shops up there. Uh, it's a great little town. And finally, for the uh, wrap-up episode here, we're going to play a clip from the episode we did on December 15th, the Beverly Hills Supper Club. Peter Bronson, he was a journalist for years and years, mostly with the Cincinnati Inquirer, you probably remember. He's written several books, and the latest is called Forbidden Fruit, Sin Cities, Underworld, and the Supper Club. And we discussed the fire, of course, uh, what led to it, but also a lot about, like, the pre-story and what led up to it, including, and I didn't even, well, I kind of realized this, but I didn't really realize how... Uh, how much this was true, was how crazy a town Newport was and why that made it, uh, Cincinnati, an attractive place for convention visitors, Peter explains. What they do as far as the Chamber of Commerce is concerned, they boosted their convention business by bringing people to Cincinnati because we had what? Newport. Anything goes. I mean, it was so wild that the cab drivers would actually post uh, broth, the names of brothels in the window of their cab and they were on commission to take convention visitors to those specific brothels in northern Kentucky, and they would get a, a cut. So they would advertise the women, the prices, everything right there in their cabs while they picked up convention visitors in Cincinnati. And those are back in the days when convention visitors didn't bring their wives. Hmm. They didn't bring their family. Uh, so a, many a convention visitor experienced all the wild nights and uh, menu of uh, attractions in northern Kentucky. So how about that? Cincinnati was also Sin City in a way, although the sin was across the river. We didn't want nothing to do with that. If you go across the river, knock yourself out. All right. And, and some people did get knocked out, as a matter of fact, as he also explained. There's another, uh, there's a story about that. 
Anyway, so that's the uh, best of 2021, kids. Uh, we are in discussions to kind of figure out what we're going to do with the podcast. Uh, if you've been enjoying the show, please email info at cincyshirts.com and uh, tell us you're supporting the show, that you enjoy listening to it. We're thinking of maybe only doing these periodically when we get a really good guest instead of trying to, like, you know, shoehorn somebody in that maybe isn't as of, you know, interesting or as a good a guest as some of the other guests are. It's kind of hard because we've talked to most of the interesting people we think we could find on our Rolodexes between the three of us. So if you can, yeah, again, go to info at cincyshirts.com and kind of just give us your thoughts on the podcast. Like I said, we maybe do it once a month. We may just do it as we get them, and it's more like a, a blog post. It just turns up when we have something interesting. And there still are a few more folks we want to talk to, but we're not sure we can pump out another 52 of these in 2022. But again, your thoughts are always welcome there. Uh, in the meantime, I invite you to go back and go through those Cincy Shirts podcast archives. Like I said, there's over 200 episodes, and uh, you can find a lot of great ones back there. I think they're all great. They're all interesting. Whenever I put these episodes together, these bests of, I'm always surprised at all the great nuggets that I've forgotten about until I started digging through the episodes. Like, oh yeah, we talked about that, and that's a fascinating story. So today's show is produced by me with help from Josh and Darren. Our theme music is Cincinnati by Big Nothing. They're from Philadelphia. Find their music in Apple Music, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you get your music, you can find Big Nothing. And find vintage tees from great places like Boston, Phoenix, Pittsburgh, Cleveland, Louisville, Seattle, Philadelphia, and more at OldSchoolShirts.com. Like with Cincy Shirts, old malls, defunct teams, radio personalities, radio stations, all that kind of thing, as I like to describe it. Cincy Shirts, but for those towns. And again, the promo code for this episode is O. I didn't pick one, did I? Let me pick one from... I'm going to go with Kleber, as in Kleberheads, because I love them so much. They're, so, they're such great folks. Uh, K-L-A-B-E-R. Kleber is going to be your coupon code for this episode. You're going to use that to take 20% off your entire CincyShirts.com or OldSchoolShirts.com order, or go into our stores and over the Rhine and Hyde Park and say, I'd like to use the podcast code Kleber, and they'll gladly give you 20% off your order. Follow our social channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and Snapchat for the latest Cincy Shirts news. Tell your friends about the show. Give us a good review wherever you get the podcast from. And as always, download or stream us next time. Bye. I said goodbye